Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Stephen H. Wilson Chris Lester George Clensos Link Scrow Christiana Ellis Kitty McKinn Nathan Lowell With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence Listener discretion is advised And now Episode 17 Hello, this is Kitty Nikian, also known as Hera Flea, daughter of Heretic on the Polyschismatic Reprobates Hour. You're listening to Antithesis, Book One, and this is the story so far. Despite his suspicions and investigations, Douglas Reeves knows precious little about the events that surround him. He doesn't know that his resistance network has been infiltrated. He doesn't know that the man who sponsored his appointment is preparing to move against him. And he doesn't know that his lover is, even now, being interrogated at gunpoint by her sister, Cassie Orenthal. Joss Kyle, now convinced that Cassie has sold him out, knows that sooner or later the contract killers will come to his door, but he's determined that all they'll find is a piece of lead lodged lovingly in their brain as he shoots them from the comfort of his easy chair, where he now sleeps, guarding the door. William Shelley, senator and head of the Space Affairs Committee, bides his time waiting for his plan, whatever it is, to unfold. While off on Nineveh, his lackey and son-in-law, Percy Scott, completes the last of his mission. Reuben Briggs, blood trader with few days remaining to him, tossed a blue velvet pouch on the table. 200,000, all in natural diamonds. The De Beers search in the bag, each rock is numbered. Briggs. He was calling himself Kyle now, Percy reminded himself, not that it would matter much longer, offered an eyepiece for him to verify their authenticity. Percy took it and clamped it to his eye, then removed a diamond from the bag and fumbled for a moment with the certificate, making a show of trying to understand how the system was supposed to work. So this little number here... Each one has one, and they all match the serial numbers on the certificate. Okay, yes. Yes, I see it. Percy scrolled down the list on the certificate and found its match. Good. Good. He played the greedy fairy queen manner to the hilt, just like he'd seen Walters do any time he was giddy. Alrighty then. He dropped the diamond and the cert back into the pouch and handed the eyepiece back to Briggs. I could still use your help in the turn Get it. I'm not selling my brothers out to the likes of you anymore. He dangled the pouch for emphasis. Don't need the money anymore. You and me, Mr. Kyle, we're done. Percy stood and tipped an imaginary hat at Briggs. This smarmy little shit just wouldn't up and leave. For someone who insisted on cash, Walters didn't know the first damn thing about how it worked. Even though Joss was supposed to keep the poser around, he was glad Walters had declined the secondary job offer. The great, impotent peacock show Walters put on over the stones was wasting time, though. Time better spent on securing a little peace of mind. Well then, I have a lot of work to do, and I don't want you around the bar if you're not working. Joss had seen that hat tip move before. Where? Get your ass out of here. Surely will, Mr. Kyle. Watch out for things that go boom. Oh, he was light, but cagey. 
figured. He'd been afraid Joss would hold out on him, so now he was getting his digs in. Weak, stupid people always did. Joss nodded a dismissal and settled back down to his PPD, letting Walters walk out of Phalanx for the last time, and very relieved to see him go. No more crumbs in his throat. No more bloody cultist looking over his shoulder every moment trying to make sure his money didn't accidentally get passed on to anyone else. Now, he could concentrate on the next order of business. The order on his screen was just about ready. The customizations were all filled out. The ship was already docked in the station, so it would be a simple title transfer and then a couple of weeks waiting for the renovations. Now all it required was a signature and a thumbprint. Joss signed his name and pressed his thumb to the scanner. It was a small thing, but it made him feel a trifle less cornered. And he'd need all his wits about him to play the next hand. Percy's report was sterling, as always. Only one loose end there to tie up now. Bill was ready for it. The cedar walls glowed with the early morning light streaming through his east-facing office window. He sat down at the desk, poured himself a brandy and a seltzer, and knocked it back in a single swallow. He'd taken days to write the next message in his queue, an email he'd been hoping he wouldn't have to send. Now there wasn't a choice. He addressed it to his man on Luna. It was the last loose end to tie up before he could move to the endgame. Soon, he hoped... The whole dirty business would be done. He wished he'd never had to play the game in the first place, but some things were out of even his control. It was what he had to do, no matter how awful, no matter how difficult, no matter how many sleepless nights he was buying himself. He didn't have a choice. It was a cold comfort. But one more regret to carry around on the mountain of them he'd accumulated over the years probably wouldn't make a difference. An eyedropper full of pain in an ocean of hurt. It surprised him, actually, that this was more difficult than the business with Marion. But over the years, Percy had been closer, more dependable, and he'd been a friend, almost like a son. Once it was done, Briggs would be out of the way. Percy wouldn't be able to hold anything over him again, ever. Marion would recover and her life would go on. The country would be safe. And if he played the last few moves right, he would finally be his own man again. Bill opened another communication channel, this one to TGN, and booked a press conference. Time for phase three. In the desert, with hand tools, they quarried limestone. Without so much as a wheel, throngs of men hauled it a dozen miles over desert and piled the stones one upon another. The structure of crystal and cell had lain hidden since the beginning. These floodland farmers divined this golden ratio, and they used it on their stones, transmuting the rubble into towers to heaven, polished to a shine and reaching into the waters above the earth. Four thousand years ago. Lesser men of later civilizations looked at the work of these dark men, barbarians at the crossroads of Sumeria, India, and Nubia, and found them intolerable. 
a civilization that history had passed by, shaming Earth's younger children with its pyramids set high on the Giza Plateau. They should not have stood. While Greeks of earlier ages looked to Egypt as a tutor, their stepchildren looked across the Great Sea in mockery at the graveyard it had become. The pyramids were forgotten, lost to the sand for a thousand years, and then credited to aliens when they were discovered again. In the long darkness between ages of enlightenment, Europe gathered light again from the east and the south. Stonemasons and architects learned from the Arabs, the Hindus, and the Chinese to sculpt stone into tall structures that seemed to grow out of the ground and float in the air like the tops of a forest, supported by columns and arches and shot through with glass and light. Those columns two meters across, supported hundreds of tons of stone and metal and wood. No one in the West and few people anywhere else had ever seen such immensity supported by so delicate a skeleton. Doug had seen it, and all those decades ago as a student, he'd not thought he'd ever again see anything so elegant. But the whalebone bracing of Sharch didn't have a prayer next to the delicate soaring interiors of Glen Hall in Luna City. Carved in bas-relief in a spiral from the pinnacle down to the floor, the surviving stories of Earth's great civilizations played out one upon another, winding their way down to the brass-polished floor. At the bottom of the cone, 200 meters below the footprints in the dust of Mare Tranquillitatis, Douglas Reeves sat opposite Greg Singh in the vast anteroom and watched the news. Doug sat back comfortably in the overstuffed leather chair. The large screen hung in the air, tuned permanently to TGN except for times when the board was in open session, when it fed the proceedings to the public. A chessboard, in the heat of pitched battle, sat on the table between them, and Singh sat opposite Reeves in a cloud of disgust, his normally jovial long-boned features distorted by a grimace into something resembling a gargoyle. The board was technically in session, holding a protracted debate on matters of infrastructure, garbage collection, recycling infrastructure, and zone planning for prospective expansion of three of the major cities on the earthward side of the planetoid. Not that the news was much better. In a solar system full of discoveries, long voyages, gripping stories, international intrigue, wars, wonders, beautiful young men, and butterflies, the network keeps reporting on Hollywood and Bollywood and Catholic priests. It's like Vishnu and Zeno were secret lovers, and this is their child, an unbounded entity whose resources are ever-expanding and whose focus is ever smaller and more ordinary, like Kali taking up crochet. The leather complained lightly as Greg shifted his weight to make room for the mist of amusement that rose up around him, but the announcer didn't heed his critique and burst out boldly. With more offices in more countries and more colonies than any other network, bringing you the solar system at your fingertips, you're watching the Terran Global Network. This is TGN. The well-paid paternal voice oozed sex, comfort, and excitement behind the flashy motion graphics. The screen resolved to show an anchor who looked like he was having far too much fun for someone whose job it was to parrot sincerity and concern. And now we take you live to the steps of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., where Karis Chandler is covering the developing situation. 
Thanks, Trent. It's been 14 hours since Senator Shelley was supposed to appear here on the Capitol steps. At five this morning in the sleet, his chief of staff emerged and told us that the senator had been unexpectedly detained by an emergency session of the Space Affairs Subcommittee. We've been assured that the senator will join us all out here as soon as he can, but at this hour, as the ice hardens on the Capitol steps, we still keep vigil until the senator emerges. This is Karis Shandley for TGN on Capitol Hill. Back to you, Trent. Greg turned down the speaker on the table between them to a barely audible level to spare them both the incessant punditry over nothing. (laughs) I think they just made your point for you, Greg. Doug chuckled and watched the ticker for anything of interest while covertly scraping the edge of a nail file along the sides of his fingers to keep him alert. Greg shifted his improbably tall frame around in the leather uncomfortably. He was out here as protest, even though Luna's vital industries had all been built on the Tycho Crater for what the Terrans laughingly called environmental concerns, namely that the view from Earth would be spoiled. And even though the tunnels and dark side had long overgrown their design capacity, the U.S. appointees that ran the development committee found it easier to ignore the fact that the cities in Tsiolkovsky even existed. But they couldn't ratify a vote without the participation of the representative of the planet's neglected spaceward side. So there he sat, in a cloud of his own imperiousness, and bitched about the sins of the 24-hour news cycle. I would happily watch endless coverage on a missing child, or a plane crash, or some other meaningless thing. It is never news, but it is entertaining. But these imbeciles, these incompetents, these puerile children, they've gotten so full of themselves that they spent 14 hours of continuous coverage commenting on the symbolic significance of an empty staircase. Face it, Reeves, this sad sack isn't coming out. Reeves pulled a slip of paper out of his pocket and scribbled a note on it, then set it down on the table in front of the representative from Darkside. I'll bet you two kilos of shade that he comes out in the next ten minutes. Singh picked up the paper and looked suspiciously over at Doug. You have an ace up your sleeve? This is chess, not poker. Aces won't avail you. Reeves smirked. Take the bet and find out. It may not have been quite fair, but Doug knew that Greg was bored enough to take the bet. Besides, if the allegedly honorable representative of the bowels of industry hadn't been diligent enough to find out who it was that had sponsored Reeves' appointment to the Lunar Court, he deserved to lose. So Doug smiled quietly to himself while his opponent chewed the proposition intently, looking from time to time at the paper as if it were a golden ticket in a world where gold was particularly valuable. Greg was a canny, leathery old bastard, a grandnephew of one of the first families to settle in Tsiolkovsky, part of a large group of Indian expatriates fleeing the war with Pakistan. His family had founded the city of Darkside, built up its energy infrastructure that now fed power to the rest of the moon and sold surplus back to several nations on Earth. Its combination of solar mirrors, reactors, and hydrocarbon mining produced more energy every day than all the cities on Luna could use in a month. It was Luna's largest cash industry, the one that had established it as the undisputed powerhouse of the off-world colonies, and the one that made it the chief threat to the stability of the Persian Empire. How long are you going to let them sweat before you go back in and offer the New Deal? Doug reached down to the table between them and moved his knight into position to cover his rook and queen. Americans, Greg snorted. Some things are matters of principle. Not everything is a negotiating tactic. He moved his bishop to threaten Doug's knight, then sat back with another smirk, casting a covert glance at the silent display screen hanging above them. Now that man, Alcock, 
He knew how to negotiate. He picked his stage name just right. Sums him up beautifully. He mumbled something under his voice that sounded suspiciously like... Fucking prick. Man goes to a lot of work to look that cheerful. What? Is there an altar boy under the table who licks his bullet during the broadcast? Oh, it's far worse than that. Doug laced his voice with disgust. Or it was the one time he interviewed me. He repositioned his bishop to trap Singh's king behind a row of pawns. A goat? It's amazing he's got anything left. Greg looked astonished in spite of his poker face and moved one of his pawns forward to provide an escape. Clown pants. Doug muttered the words as he took the pawn with his other rook, boxing the king in and baiting a trap that would give him mate in one move. What? Greg looked at him quizzically and unthinkingly took the bait. Clown pants. Doug let a broad grin creep across his face. The man wears large, floppy, yellow, and purple polka-dotted clown pants while he's broadcasting. Greg blinked blindly for a couple of moments, and then, despite his best attempts to hold it in, his laughter (laughs) broke free and echoed through the chamber. Doug held his move for a moment, not wanting to spoil his colleague's reverie. The screen showed the cluster of microphones right in front of the immense sliding wood-paneled doors that marked the west entrance to the Capitol. Doug reached out to the control pad and toggled the volume on. Greg sat up in his chair in anticipation, looking fixedly at the screen. Someone, no, several someones, were coming towards the de facto podium, swaddled in trench coats, hats pulled low over their brows. A round woman in her late fifties stepped up to the mics and called for attention. The caption on the screen identified her as the junior senator from Massachusetts. Ah, finally, some real entertainment. These clowns come camouflaged as real human beings. Greg leaned back to watch. I'm here to apologize on behalf of Senator Shelley for the long delay. Shortly after five this morning, the vice president called an emergency session of the Space Affairs Committee to discuss a recent series of terrorist attacks by lunar radicals against U.S. targets, both here at home and abroad. These attacks have been classified until this time. Doug breathed deeply. Oh, shit. Senator Shelley is reading a prepared statement on the Senate floor as we speak. And if you'll switch to the closed-circuit feed available at the board, you... The screen flickered for a moment. Then the image resolved to show an exercise Senator Shelley standing at the podium on the Senate floor. On Space Station Sidon, my daughter was assaulted. Her husband was stabbed to death and his body mutilated. She was also mutilated, tied up, blindfolded. Stripped, and the message lay off Luna, carved into her back with a knife. This political statement was made by a personal attack on my family. The screen showed a picture of little Marion's mutilated hips. Doug's stomach lurched. This brutality cannot go unanswered. Since this attack last week, Several assaults against embassy employees on the moon and in Europe have taken place, all with layoff Luna found written near at hand in the aftermath. Shelley paused, breathing measuredly, apparently in an effort to keep back tears. When he started again, his voice was husky. This committee has always been outspokenly supportive of lunar autonomy. Although some in the press and other senators from both sides of the aisle have tried to dissuade me, I've always believed that maximal autonomy for our off-world stations and bases to be in the best interests of the United States and of the world. 
Our republic was founded on the notion that humans have the right to control their government and that government should serve the people. And that founding was a subversive act. Before Franklin and Jefferson and Washington, every government in history believed that government had the right to rule over people and bend them to its will. I heard cries from people on both major parties, from the public, and even from our allies, that it was foolhardy to allow people to live on the moon without strict controls in place. They'd tell me that the strategic reality outweighed idealism, but I wouldn't listen. But they were right. Having a power, living at the top of the gravity well, where all that power would have to do to destroy the world would be to build a catapult to hurl large rocks at major cities on Earth. It's simply an unacceptable risk. These terrorist attacks prove that the lunar government is incapable of governing or controlling the actions of its people who've been given unprecedented freedoms. In some cases, more freedom than ordinary citizens of the United States have. Their free cultivation of cannabis, their laissez-faire attitude toward family structure, the disproportionate populations of atheists and materialists, their heavily armed populace. All of these are things that are unworkable in civil society. They've created the Wild West up there, and evidently, some of their citizens have gotten so used to taking the law into their own hands that they've declared an unofficial war against the very people who made their freedom possible. I have made a profound error of judgment that has put everyone on this planet at risk. I've used my power to advance something I sincerely believed was right, but I have been proved wrong. Starting on Monday, I will be introducing a series of bills that will curtail the autonomy of the lunar government, that will outlaw the underground currency, that will put U.S. and U.N. peacekeeping forces on the moon and in the shipping lanes to police illegal trade, and that will shut down all Earth-facing industrial works that could potentially be converted into launch bases for asteroid catapults. Now, I ask for your vote on the resolution we drafted earlier today to send it to the full Senate tomorrow, condemning the Luna government for its failure to prevent these attacks and calling for a full investigation. With your help and the help of the American people, we can ensure that Earth will be safe again. So that was it. Doug switched off the audio in disgust and looked across at Greg, who was ashen even through his deep walnut coloring. Doug made his move, pushing his rook through Greg's pawn line. Checkmate. Greg nodded, and without another word, they both stood up and strode quickly to the council chambers. The board's agenda had just been changed. You've been listening to episode 17 of Antithesis, book one, Predestination, and other games of chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Stephen H. Wilson as Percy Scott, Chris Lester as Greg Singh, George Klinsoss as Douglas Reeves, Lynx Crow as Trent Alcock, Christiana Ellis as Karis Shandley, Kitty Nakian as the junior senator from Massachusetts, and Nathan Lowell as Senator Wilhelm Shelley. 
Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008 and 2009, Kitty Nikian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Are you a writer? Do you have a pile of rejection letters from agents and publishers if you can even get them to write you back at all? You know you've got a fiction or nonfiction product that people want to read, but how can you prove that when you can't even get into print? At Author Bootcamp, a two-day intensive class held February 20th and 21st in San Francisco, California, we teach you how to produce your work as a serialized audiobook. How to use social media to promote it, and how to build an audience that proves to agents and publishers that your work will sell. This isn't some class by a self-purported social media expert. Class instructors are Seth Harwood, who turned his serialized audiobook Jack Wakes Up into a paperback deal with Random House, the world's largest publisher, and Scott Sigler, who used these same steps to go from unpublished author to New York Times hardcover fiction bestseller. Author Bootcamp is not a shortcut, and it is not a quick fix, but Scott and Seth can cut months, if not years, off your learning curve and help you build the audience that you know is out there. Learn more at authorbootcamp.com. Use the code provided by this podcast to save $200 off admission. And that, fellow gamblers, is how the mountainside crumbles. An avalanche might start with a few pebbles. In our case, those pebbles have now all fallen. It's all over but the screaming. What's all over? Well, that's what you have to figure out. For those of you considering embarking on the madness that is full cast novel podcasting, please heed the words of Sigler, Harwood, T. Morris, and myself. Have everything recorded before you start. And always remember that most important of the Beatitudes, blessed are the pessimists, for they have made backups. I know better than not to make backups. I really do. Which is why I really screwed the pooch on this episode, and it only came off because I have rockin' friends to help me out. To start off with, I lost the original recording for Karis Shandley and tried for weeks to get a fill-in because the original actress wasn't available until after this episode would drop. Several podcasters and Twitter pals and fans offered to help, and several tried, but I finally found a good fit for the role in Christiana Ellis, who literally turned the part around to me on 20 minutes' notice. If you're listening to this after I've had Elizabeth Rossi, the original actress, back into the studio to record, you won't have heard Christiana's performance. Suffice it to say, she saved my ass. I owe you one, Christiana. If any of you aren't familiar with her yet, check out her books Space Casey and Nina Kimberly the Merciless, both available through patiobooks.com. She also does a knock-you-over funny podcast called Shallow Thoughts, which she posts almost daily. She's got a serrated wit that will leave you trying to figure out whether your brain is supposed to turn inside out just for fun. It's wonderful stuff. Then there was the second screw-up, for this week, which is where your humble narrator completely fails to cast the role of Greg Singh because, well, because he's an anal retentive son of a bitch. That's me, by the way, not the character. I looked and looked and looked for the perfect voice for Greg Singh, and finally, 
On the night I was editing this episode, Chris Lester just happened by and volunteered to give it a go. Chris, you also have saved my ass on this one. I just wonder if he realizes how big a job he just signed up for for books two and three. Speaking of Chris Lester and Seth Harwood and Scott Sigler, we're all hosting another pub crawl. This one is at 5 p.m. at the House of Shields in San Francisco on February 21st. It's accessible from the Powell Street BART station, and you can find directions at www.houseofshields.com. Those of you with feedback on the last two episodes, now is the time to send it in. We're recording another Dealing In this Thursday night. The usual crowd, and the usual booze, will be here and we will cause trouble and embarrass ourselves all in the name of entertaining you. You can email questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats to dan at jdsawyer.net, or you can leave them on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. You can call and leave voicemail, and please do, at area code 206-350-5739. If you're not in North America, remember to use the U.S. country code 01 to get into our lovely outdated phone network. And remember to spread the word. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, post a link, give away MP3s, and pelt your enemies with CD copies of the first few episodes to get people hooked. Remember, I don't get paid for this. Your feedback and yearning for more story is all I'm getting out of it. Keep it coming. Make it worth my while. New episode is on its way this Saturday night. That's three episodes in seven days for you guys, and more episodes and special features are on the way. I'll see you again Saturday, but until then, you gotta wonder, how will the board react to Senator Shelley's press conference? What will happen with the ship Joss just purchased? Where is Percy going now that he's finished his business at Phalanx? And how are Jim and Allie faring on Mars with their bounty? Find out this Saturday. And until next time, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.